ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. Now, all of us in here have probably heard that phrase, or we've even used ignorance is bliss in our own lives. Communicates the idea that sometimes it's just better not to know the truth so that you don't have to worry about it. What you don't know won't hurt you. Ignorance is bliss when I don't know how much fat and sugar are in a mocha frappuccino from Starbucks. Lack of knowledge allows for me to enjoy the goodness of a sugary frappuccino guilt-free. Ignorance is bliss for those who don't receive the daily news on their phone so they aren't bombarded with the sky-is-falling narrative in the world. Not knowing what's going on, hey, it prevents me from getting stressed out. That's not so bad a thing. However, the problem with this mindset is it actually creates a false sense of reality because ignorance is really not always bliss. In fact, it can come with serious consequences. For example, if you don't know about a tax that you have to pay and you don't pay it, well, it's not going to be pretty when the IRS comes to take you and take your money. (laughs) It's not going to be blissful on that day. How much more being ignorant of the one that you're ultimately accountable to on that final day? On that final day, ignorance will not be bliss. Remaining ignorant of that accountability won't be bliss because in the end, it will reap destruction. In our text this afternoon, Paul calls out the ignorance of the Athenians. That in reality, they don't really know the gods that they worship. And more importantly, they don't know the only true God who is actually worthy of all worship and praise. The one that they're actually accountable to. And by addressing this ignorance, Paul is actually reorienting them to reality itself. And that's what we're about to see in Acts 17. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. If you're new to the Bible, Acts comes right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's right after those four Gospels. And it actually serves as the second part of Luke's first work in the Gospel of Luke. And so it's Luke-Acts. They're a two-part work. So far in the book of Acts, Jesus has ascended his throne in heaven, and the good news of his death and resurrection, it just continues to spread throughout the world. And one of Jesus' messengers taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is actually the Apostle Paul. The year is roughly between 49 to 51 AD, and Paul is on a second missionary journey throughout modern-day Greece. As he's made his way through cities in northern Greece like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, we see people respond to the message differently. In the first part of chapter 17, we saw two completely different responses to the apostles' message, didn't we? The Jews in Thessalonica, they rejected Paul's message because of his popularity, declaring that his message was turning the world upside down. All the while, the Thessalonians sought to stage and incite a riot, strip them naked, flog them, and then throw them in jail. Now I wonder really who was turning the world upside down. However, as Luke points out, the Jews in Berea they're actually more noble than their counterparts in Thessalonica because they examine the scriptures daily with eagerness to see if what Paul was actually preaching was true and right. 
these contrasting responses to the gospel really show us where their final authority lies. That's what we looked at two weeks ago. That those who truly worship the Lord will actually submit themselves to his word as their final authority. Nothing else on par with God's authority. Only the word as its final authority. With that, let's read about Paul's next stop after Thessalonica and Berea in Athens in Acts 17. Let's look at verses 16 to 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver, or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, Some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I think the main idea that Luke is getting at in this text, the main idea for us from Acts 17, 16 through 34, I think is this, that only a God without needs can provide what we need most. I think that's the point. Only a God without needs can provide what we need most. I think very simply that's the point of the text. 
And we see this main idea really fleshed out in two primary sections of this text. As we move from section to section, we're going to see, number one, that our need is great. We have a great need. And then number two, only God can provide what we need most. So point number one, our need is great. We'll look at this in verses 16 to 21. And then point number two, only God can provide what we need most in verses 22 to 34. So point number one, our need is great. Paul finds himself in the city of Athens in southern Greece after fleeing persecution from the Thessalonian Jews in Berea. And having traveled over 200 miles from northern Greece to southern Greece, Paul is alone in the city of Athens. He's by himself, waiting on Timothy and Silas to arrive from Berea. Now, Athens at this time in the first century was a shadow of its former glory 400 years earlier, during the days of Socrates, during the days of Plato, and as well Aristotle. Rome had conquered Athens in 146 BC and yet left it as a free city because it loved it culturally. It's often why where you get all these Greek gods, the Romans actually just putting a new name to them, as we're going to see with the Areopagus here in just a moment. They loved Greek culture, and left Athens as a free city. And though it wasn't the leading commercial and political city in Greece, which is Corinth, which we're going to find out next week and look at more next week, it was leading city culturally and intellectually, which is exactly what Luke brings out in this text. It's a highly cultural text. Athens was still very much the center of philosophy throughout the Roman Empire. And as Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy in this grand city, he doesn't feel so grand, does he? Look at verse 16. It says that he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, I don't think the words that would describe my time in Athens, looking at the architecture of the Parthenon and seeing the temples of the Olympian gods, the statues and the ancient Agora, where Plato and Aristotle spoke and stood. I don't know that I would call my time deeply distressed. In fact, I think my time there would probably be deeply impressed, greatly impressed with everything going on. How incredible that this is. But Paul is not a tourist. Paul is a missionary. What is deceptively demonic does not impress Paul. Because the grandeur and the glory of this city was only a facade of the more sinister reality of idolatry. The word that's used right there for deeply distressed really gets at the idea of Paul being inwardly angry. Him being inwardly infuriated at everything that he is seeing. It's the same word used for God's anger towards Israel's idolatry in Isaiah 65 verse 3 where God says... These people continually anger me to my face, sacrificing in gardens, burning incense on bricks to their idols. Now, the fact that idols were present in Athens isn't anything new. That wasn't surprising. Polytheism, the worship of many gods, was rampant across the Roman, the Greco-Roman Empire. The ancient geographer, Pausinius, who visited Athens 50 years later after Paul, said it was easier to meet a god or goddess on the main street of Athens than to meet a man. The gods outnumbered the people of the city. 
But just because it was common doesn't mean that it was any less offensive. These idols were seen as living representatives of their gods. Many believed that these gods placed their name on these idols by breathing life into these human-made statues of wood and stone and gold. Paul wasn't infuriated just because he doesn't like idols. He was infuriated because Athenians who claimed to be wise became fools and exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, as he says in Romans 1, 22 through 25. They're worshipping false gods. They're living according to a false reality, as we're going to see and as the argument that Paul makes. God created mankind as his image bearers by breathing his spirit into them as his living representatives on the earth. We don't bow and worship to man, but worship the one who created man. Paul was incensed because they were robbing God of the glory that he was due. I wonder what makes you angry. What is it that makes you angry? Traffic probably makes you angry. Food not being served on time probably makes you angry. Unmet expectations certainly can make you angry. Children not closing the door after them in the house can make you angry. Often we get angry for the wrong reasons and in the wrong ways, or we don't get angry when we actually should be angry. Friends, because we're created in God's image, he has hardwired us for good anger. He's hardwired you to have a sense of justice within you because you're created in his image. He's hardwired you for good anger. But because we're sinful, our anger often turns bad and unrighteous. Our anger, the lack thereof, is often aroused out of a love for self rather than a love for God. But what's interesting is that God's anger is always good. And it is always aroused toward one thing, and that is sin, which is a betrayal of love for God. And so when you think about what angers you, all the things in your life, even just today or even this week, when you look back at your own anger in your life, would you say what angers you is sin, idolatry, evil, injustice in the world? Do those things actually anger you out of a love for God? Or do they anger you for selfish reasons? Do they anger you out of a love for self? I'm inconvenienced. Do they anger you because God is not receiving the glory that he is actually due? Is that why it angers you? (laughs) I think you can see how humbling this is when you begin to evaluate your life. I know for me, I look back at all the anger from this past week and I'm like, yeah, that was really, really unholy. I don't know how often I got angry for God's glory whenever I saw sin. It was more out of my own selfishness and self-centeredness of being inconvenienced than anything else. Friends, we ought to pray that our hearts would be so aligned with God that what angers God would actually anger us. That our anger at sin and evil would actually reflect our love for God and a passion for his glory. Paul knew both sides of this anger. He knew the good side and he knew the bad side. When did we see the bad side? 
the noun form of the same word, deeply distressed, was used back in Acts 15. With who? He and Barnabas. You bet he expressed it in bad ways. That was the negative form of anger. But here we expressed it, here he expressed it in righteous ways, in the good kind of way. And what's important to notice is what he does with his anger in verse 17. Look at verse 17. He doesn't throw up his hands at idolatry and then just retreat. Oh, they're worthless. This is hopeless. I'm out of here. I'm going back to Berea and dealing with the Thessalonians who wanted to kill me. That's not what he's going to do. He doesn't throw up his fist in rage. Right? He's not in retreat. He doesn't throw up his fist in rage against all the idols and the polytheism that is going on. How dare you? That's not how he responds. Instead, he reasons with them. His distress actually leads to debate. Did you notice that? It's important to understand where his anger takes him. Their idolatry provoked Paul to preach, and it should for us as well. Former English pastor John Stott once said that the highest incentive of all for evangelism is zeal or jealousy for the glory of Jesus Christ. Whenever God has denied his rightful place in people's lives, therefore we should feel inwardly wounded and jealous for his name. Paul didn't bask in the glory of Athens because he was jealous for the glory of God. Friends, are you jealous for the glory of God? Does your anger toward the sin of others lead you to rage at them on Twitter? Does it lead you to retreat and just give up on that relationship? Or does it lead you to reason the resurrection of Jesus with others as we see in verse 18? The best motivation for telling others about Jesus is a jealousy for his name to be given the glory that it is due. Paul knew that the consequence of idolatry was God's wrath. But in anger, he didn't rage against them, but reasoned the resurrection to them so that they might receive God's mercy. That's where his anger went. Only by reasoning and debating and preaching the resurrection will they come to know that Jesus' resurrection is actually the proof that God's wrath has been satisfied against them through his own death. Friends, Paul's anger resulted in mercy. It was merciful and worked in merciful ways. When provoked, his anger didn't lead him to commit idolatry like them by being angry for the wrong reasons. That would be idolatrous. He's not going to join them in that. Instead, his anger got busy showing mercy. It was patient because the Lord is slow to anger. It was constructive toward them because he didn't turn away from what was wrong, but he actually faced it head on so that they might repent and be redeemed. It was purposeful. He had a goal for this. And the goal of his preaching, as it says there in verse 18, was Jesus and the resurrection. If we're going to be effective evangelists, sin ought to provoke us to preach because we're jealous for God's glory and we long to see people redeemed from their slave market of their sin. That's why we ought to preach Christ and be provoked to preach. As we step into this merciful, constructive conflict, the context of idolatry is going to be super diverse in our own day and then especially in Paul's own day. 
in verses 17 and 18. Look at that. Paul not only reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, but he's also reasoning in the marketplace with pagans. Look who else is in the marketplace. He debates with Epicurean philosophers who believe that the universe was created by accident, by tiny particles of matter. It was all an accident. They rejected divine intervention. They rejected life after death. He's debating with Stoic philosophers who believe that nature and everything in it is divine, that it has the spark of divine in it, that God is in everything and dependent upon his creation to be who he is. So not only was there an idolatry of worshiping many gods, but there's also an idolatry of wisdom and knowledge and a sense of pride in always wanting to hear something new. Some even calling Paul in verse 18 an ignorant show-off, literally a seed picker, which is interesting. It has the, the idea of a bird just going around, barnyard bird just going around, plucking up seed. It's as if what Paul is doing is that he's just picking up random pieces of information, useless information, and then passing it off as if he's a know-it-all. Paul, you're an ignorant show-off. In effect, they were calling Paul an amateur philosopher. You're not like Socrates. You are not like Plato. And you are not Aristotle. And yet Luke draws out the irony of this in verse 21. Look there. He pokes fun at the Athenians for being seed pickers just like they accused Paul of being. Luke says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Blah, blah, blah. But that's the the irony of idolatry, isn't it? It's self-defeating. It does the very thing that it condemns, and in so doing, it actually stands condemned itself. Even our own culture is like ancient Athens. We prize what is new. We prize the novel and the novelty of things. It's about the new iPhone, the new show, the new relationship, the new politician or the new coach, the new hot take. And so on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. We love what is new. We love the updates and the improvements, which most of the time those are very good things. Nothing wrong with that. But the reality is it's not the same way with God's word because God's word is perfect. It's not like an iPhone that needs an update every year because it's got a glitch in it or it doesn't work as well as it should. Instead, the scriptures speak with endless relevance to every single generation. Every generation. It's bread that never has an expiration date. It's bread that never goes bad. It's ancient. And yet somehow it's always up to date. Old news that is always good news. And yet because we live in a culture of novelty, we can be tempted to think that somehow we need to improve or update this word so that it's more palatable to our culture. And we do this ultimately by trying to replace it with a new message. We try to replace it with a political cause or not speaking to different doctrines or not speaking to different issues like we ought to be speaking to them such as man's sin, God's wrath, people being created in God's image and actually treating them like they're image bearers of God. And yet God tells us in Jeremiah 6, 16, what? That we remain faithful to him by following the ancient paths. That we're to contend for the faith, once for all delivered 
to the saints. We're just saying that it was the old, old story that has rescued me, that one gospel on which we stand. To some like the Athenians, these ancient paths will sound new because they've never actually even heard of them before. Because others won't be able to receive this teaching because they perceive it's outdated is one of the reasons why they'll reject it. And so, brothers and sisters, watch out for flashy, speculative, innovative doctrines that no one in church history has held to or have already actually been condemned by the church throughout history. Watch out for all of that, whether you're hearing them through in the marketplace, at work, or online. Though Paul's message was new to the Athenians, it was as old as creation itself. The need in Athens was great, and the need in our day is great as well. Point number two, only God, though, can provide what we need most. So we've seen that the need is great, not only in Athens, but the need is great even for us in our own day. But only God can provide what we need most. Well, because the Athenians have a craving to hear what's new, they take Paul to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was both a court and a hill. It was a council of people that met to hear cases, yet it was also a hill with great symbolism. It was known as Mars Hill, or the Hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Mars was the Roman god of war. Right? They just slapped a different name on Ares. And so Ares is the god of war. This is the Hill of Ares. And the picture that we get right here is that it's about to go down. <laughs> it's about to go down. Paul isn't quite standing trial, but the Athenians are putting his message in the dock and God is about to go to war with the philosophies of the day. And Paul's approach is different here than it was back in Thessalonica and in Berea with the Jews. There he just jumps straight to Jesus being the Messiah. Here he starts all the way back at God being creator. He begins with God being the creator because the teaching is new and it's strange to them as we've already seen in verse 20. They didn't know about this teaching. But Paul wasn't changing the message. Instead, what he's doing is he is adapting that message to his context. It's known as contextualization, right? Oftentimes, this ends up being a big, big, bad word. But to contextualize means to adapt the gospel message to a particular culture without compromising the gospel itself. It means to adapt the gospel message to a particular culture without compromising the gospel itself. Now, on the one hand, we don't want to overemphasize contextualization. We don't want to overemphasize those differences that we have in, in our culture. The one gospel in which we stand is applicable to every single society that has ever lived, and it's relevant to every single sinner always and forever. However, we don't want to underemphasize our cultural differences as if they have no bearing on how people actually hear the message. If we don't adapt our message, then we're going to run the risk of our audience outrightly rejecting the gospel because they don't understand it. It's a reminder that we don't contextualize to be cool, I think is what often people fear, but rather we contextualize in order to be clear. That's why we contextualize. And so anytime you're using words, you're contextualizing, right? Anytime I'm working through even just using the word contextual or contextualizing. Even just that word alone, in one sense, I'm contextualizing. 
And so anytime we have words, we're contextualizing. But Paul meets them where they're at so that they won't misunderstand the message. So instead of jumping to Jesus the Messiah, he's got to begin with God as creator to challenge their most basic cultural assumptions about God. What does he do in order to do this? He listens to the narrative that the culture is preaching in order to use it as a point of contact. That's what he does. And so look at verse 22. Paul says, people of Athens, I see that you're extremely religious. Clearly he notices their religiosity. He notices their spirituality. Then he points to the altar of the unknown God. Paul's done his homework. He's walked around a little bit. He knows all the different gods that are out there. Hey, about that unknown God, let me tell you about him. He's done his homework. He's using what they don't know to make known the one true and living God that they can know. They called Paul an ignorant show-off, but Paul is highlighting their own ignorance in giving them true knowledge and wisdom. He is turning that ignorance on its head. He says in verses 22 to 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. What Paul is doing right here is he's making an argument for the creator-creature distinction. He's making a creator-creature distinction. As creator, God made the world and everything in it. We owe our very existence to God. As the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't need us or any of his creation to actually be who he is. If he did, then creation would be Lord, not God. As the one who gives life and breath in all things, he isn't served by human hands, nor is he domesticated into a temple made by human hands like the Athenian gods. He has no limits. A temple does not contain him because he is self-contained. He's not like Zeus, who is the leader of all the Greek gods, nor is he a bigger, better, smarter version of us. He is distinct from his creation as the one who actually created it. For God, the universe isn't necessary, as important and glorious as it is. And yet he didn't create it because he had to or in order just to be fulfilled and to fill that gaping hole in his heart. We can't add anything to God or make him any greater than he already is. In every way, we are utterly dependent upon him, though he needs nothing. Do you understand how humbling that that is? As one who's even preaching you the word, God doesn't even need me. He doesn't even need this church in Bentville. He does not need billionaires to be able to chuck money into a city to make it glorious. He doesn't need any of it. That's extremely humbling. He needs none of it. And yet we are utterly destitute and in need of God every single day of our lives. God is self-sufficient. He is self-existent. Paul is reorienting the Athenians to this very reality itself. And now this may seem like news for some of us, right, who grew up hearing that God created us out of a need for love and companionship. This may sound like news. But as author Jen Wilkin put it, creation wasn't intended to fill a human-shaped hole 
in God's transcendent heart. (laughs) That's a good quote. Creation wasn't intended to fill a human-shaped hole in God's transcendent heart. God didn't create us because he needed love, but created everything as a gift of his love. He didn't create us because he needed that love, but created us as a gift of his love. He is holy, loving, and loved within himself as a trinity. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always loved the Father, and so on and so forth. He created us as a gift of that love, even though he doesn't need our love, which is remarkable. God does not need us, but we need him. And praise God that he created us as a gift of his own love for us. That's remarkable. And that will reorient your reality in your idolatry. Sadly, though, we often try to live as if we have no needs, don't we? As if need is somehow a failure. I mean, think about America itself, right? I mean, what are we known for? Like, independence, self-autonomy. That's who we are. We are great in and of ourselves. As if somehow human self-sufficiency is an achievement. I can make it on my own. I'm the captain of my faith. I'm the master of my soul. Friends, what might be some of the signs of self-sufficiency in your own lives? What might be some of the signs of that? Peeking up its ugly head in your own life. How about prayerlessness, for one? How about prayerlessness? The reason why so many say that prayerlessness is faithlessness is because we live as if God does not exist. Thinking that we can provide for ourselves without his help. But what does prayer do? Prayer actually expresses our faith in God to provide our every need. That's what it does. How about thanklessness? Not only prayerlessness, how about thanklessness? Like a child on Christmas who receives a gift and yet somehow pretends as if they bought it or they somehow made it rather than giving thanks to the giver of that gift. We can be quick to pretend like all that we have was merely earned rather than ultimately a gift of God himself. As a result, we become thankless. Not only do we see thanklessness and prayerlessness, but how about lack of accountability? I'm only giving you a couple. There are, there are a ton of ways in which we try to live self-sufficient lives. But how about a lack of accountability? We live as if we don't need help, like everything's going okay. We can do this on our own. We reject feedback about our sin. We don't pursue one another in community with an awareness of our limitations and ask for help in that fight against sin. We don't think that we have a problem, though it's apparent to everyone we do, and we need help. Friends, in what ways might self-sufficiency reveal itself in your life? In what ways do you live as if you have no needs? Though we may not bow down to a physical idol, we can be just as quick to commit idolatry of human autonomy and independence in our own hearts. We can be just as quick to do that. But the answer to our idolatry is what? As we have just seen. It is God's self-sufficiency as the creator and sustainer of all things. And yet the good news for us is that God not only only is distinct from his creation, but he's actually actively involved and intimately involved with his creation. Paul makes this argument in verses 26 to 27, or 28, or sorry, 29. Man, I botched that. 
But he's already been given the argument of the fact that God is transcendent. He is wholly other than us. Now he's making the argument from his eminence, that he is near, that we can know him. God created from one man every nationality. We all have the, the same ancestor. We can trace our roots back to Adam. We're not the result of some cosmic accident like the Athenian philosophers thought we were. God created us so that we might seek after him, so that we might know him personally. He's not far from us. He's near. From him, from in him, we live and we move and we have our being. We are his offspring. And because of this, we shouldn't think that the divine nature, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is an image fashioned by human art and imagination. And though God is involved with the world, he does not identify as the world itself, like the Stoics believed. Created beings can't contain the one who created them. You see how illogical and irrational that is, don't you? Yet those, that's the philosophy of the day. That's the idolatry in Athens. Your philosophies are self-defeating and your gods are false gods, is what Paul is saying. Yet in God's mercy, Paul says that he has actually overlooked the times of ignorance in verse 30. That what they believed to be wise was actually what? It was ignorant. They're the ignorant ones. And because we're accountable to God, ignorance is not always bliss, as we saw in the introduction. Instead, it will result in judgment because God has done what? In verse 30, he has set a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And this is why, friends, God commands everywhere, everyone, to repent. We saw that something was wrong whenever Paul said that we have to seek after God, right? We don't naturally come into this world seeking after God because we're sinful. That a right relationship with him doesn't come naturally to us because of idolatry. We have a greater love for self and the things of this world than we do for God. Why try to domesticate God, though, and make him dependent upon us? Our greatest need isn't hearing something new, but being reconciled to the one who can actually make you new. That's what our greatest need is. And the good news for us is that needy sinners like us have been provided our greatest need by God, by him becoming needy just like us through his son Jesus. He took on flesh. He experienced the full range of human needs. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He suffered. He was tempted in every way, just as we have been tempted. And yet he was without sin. All in order to redeem us from the slave market of sin. Through his death on the cross, the penalty of our sin has been paid for. Through his resurrection, he conquered death, which was the wage that sin paid to us as our master. As the result of his resurrection, Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. And so, friend, where are you in your relationship to God? Where are you in your relationship to God? You will either stand before Christ on that day, and it will be glorious, or it will be absolutely dreadful. It won't be blissful, but it will be terrifying. And so repent of living a self-sufficient life and trust in Jesus whose grace is sufficient for you, whose power is made perfect even in your weakness. 
How are you going to respond to this message? Will you respond like those in verse 32? Look there in verses 32 to 34. Will you respond by ridiculing this message? Will you respond with some curiosity, wanting to learn more like others in this text? If so, I would love to talk to you after the service about it, about this message, or even later this week. I'm more than happy to have that conversation with you. Or will you believe like Dionysius and Damaris in verse 34? Will you believe? You do recognize that all other, all other worldviews out there, you're having to take a greater leap in order to believe those than to believe this right here. It is far easier to believe this than anything else. The need, the fact that God is without needs has provided your, and provided your greatest need in Jesus' death and resurrection is the greatest news for you. Because today you can be reconciled to God and recognize your need for him who will provide for your every need. The Greeks say that this is foolishness. But the scriptures say that in Jesus is the wisdom and the power of God. Will you look to him? Will you repent and believe in him and be made new and reconciled to God who is sufficient to provide for every single one of your needs. Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you of this good news. Lord, that no longer do we have to be in ignorance, but rather we can know what may be new for some in here and yet is ancient and is old. Lord, we can know the truth and it can set us free. Lord, we can have an understanding of true wisdom and knowledge, which is ultimately found in Jesus, rather than trying to strive intellectually just to boast in ourselves. And so, Lord, keep us from this very idolatry itself. And Lord, move us by your spirit to actually seek to engage our culture out of a love for you, and a love for others in wanting them to be redeemed. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.